Hello, Ivona. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for taking the time. Very happy to chat about your career and everything you have done. Yeah, no worries. And you were on holidays recently, right, Ivona? You were taking a break? Yeah, so I actually had a wonderful month of staying out of studio, out of projects, really just having some offline time, reading books, making photographs and cyanotypes. So a lot of very offline stuff that I was yeah, kind of switching off social media and everything, recharging and resetting. Really wonderful time, can recommend that. Didn't seem to be enough though. A month just swing by so fast. It's like, I wished I would do so much more, like read so much more and do so much more fun art projects. But yeah, the, those days just flew by so fast. How often do you do that during the year? Do you take once a year or you do that often every certain amount of months? How often do you take long breaks? It's not something very regular, I'd say. But it's important, I think, to just listen to yourself. And in the springtime and the first month of summer, I had so many projects that I at some point realized I just need uh, a break from all this like work stuff and do something really different and something very offline. So yeah, it was a very impromptu decision. Not something that I have planned before, but after this experience, I must say I would probably do that more regularly and just plan for that because it also took a lot of planning and I had to prepare for that a couple months in advance so that I don't have any deadlines. I don't have any important things going on. And also I guess August is a very good month for that because a lot of people are on vacation and not so many projects pop up or maybe if you discuss them earlier, it's very easy to postpone stuff to September. So yeah, it's actually a good time for that. Yeah, that makes sense. And one of the things I wanted to chat about is your background, right? Because you are an AI artist, but before making that transition, you were AI researcher. And I wanted to understand a bit what were you doing as a researcher. But I guess when you were a researcher, you did have, I, I can imagine, some flexibility like in terms of taking days off and kind of a mm -hmm. schedule. But now the life as an artist, I guess it's much more flexible or how do you feel about that because maybe you have more projects going on and you're working with different galleries different projects is it more flexible now or is it actually the opposite yeah that's a great question so first of all it seems that the less time you have the more things you do and it's absolutely the case for me that the more projects i have going on the more other duties so when i was working as a researcher i didn't have that much time for art and i was able to do like free projects simultaneously and work and a lot of creative stuff but then suddenly when you have all those hours in a week it doesn't really feel like there is so much more so when you start doing something full-time you still need to rest you still need to do other things and I have of course a lot more time for art but it's not as much as I would have thought when I was doing PhD and doing AI research and just doing AI art as my part-time hobby So yeah, I, I don't know how that happened. What is the maths here of the free and available time? But yeah, but my work as an AI researcher was very different. So the research in AI that I was doing, a lot of the things I learned during that time helped me understand the tools I use as an artist. But also a lot of that work was very different because the papers you need to publish during your PhD research are very different from articles and Uh, art magazines or even popular science books or platforms. So uh, those papers that you usually write, they're 
not something that an average person would find interesting, that you submit to journals called IEEE or like Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineering. And it's all quite boring, to be honest, uh, the day-to-day -day life of AI researcher. And uh, you need to be able to read this scientific talk and to extract the really interesting information. So let's say how we had this paper about generative adversarial networks coming out in 2014 or so. And it was not a fascinating scientific paper, but when you read that and you understand what's going on and you play with the tools, you suddenly realize the full potential of what those tools and those models allow you to do. So yeah, that was uh, very different from just using those tools to create and also to try to break them, to find limits of those tools, to push the boundaries of what they can do. Scientists usually just publish a method, they explain how it works, they run some tests, very often run the quantitative measures to compare against different methods, provide tables and diagrams. But then as an artist, you would take the same tools and you would try to see, well, what are the limits of those tools? Maybe what would happen if I used them not the way it's intended to be done? And also to think about those models in a very different way from just evaluating them quantitatively. So yeah, it really requires also a very different mindset to do that. Right, right. I did study data science, my master's degree, and probably half of it was related to machine learning and different techniques. I remember using GANs and playing with different kind of neural networks. There are different applications, so you can apply them for all kinds of stuff, neural, and neural networks, but there are other techniques and, and different models and different ways to train it. And I was wondering if your research was always centered about image generation and always had this artist mindset that you were always interested in that path? Or were you doing all kinds of AI research, like in different fields, text generation and trying to come up with uh, predictions and other kind of things? Or it was always centered around our images and image generation? Oh, yes. It was not really centered around image generation and even art applications. So when I started working on my PhD, I was a photographer, so I was, of course, interested in images. And back then, it was not really generating images. I haven't really dreamt of the time that we would be able to generate such high-quality photographs using text-to-image tools. Back then, even understanding images seemed like magic to me. Those first papers, those first experiments I was involved in, they were more about understanding what's happening in images, running object detection, classification. One of the projects was related to detecting people's emotions or facial expressions in images, and also how can facial landmarks impact the facial expressions. The things that we kind of knew that there are different facial expressions related to emotions, and I was building a neural network that used two kinds of information, one about the facial muscles involved in the face and the other kind of trying to predict what kind of emotion is expressed in a particular image. So a task that is very difficult for the machines to do, understanding emotions. And it was not in any ways directly related to art or to image making. Then a different topic that I was working on, it was related to both images and text. Some time ago, I was working on creating those multimodal embeddings. This is essentially what is needed to be able to create images from text or to understand images, to be able to create representations that 
have both the visual meaning and also the textual meaning. One application that I was doing that for was running text retrieval engine for fashion and interior design products. So again, something not really related directly to art. And now it seems such an easy task when we have ChatGPT and large language models and stable diffusion. But back then, creating such multimodal representations that would understand both what's represented in image and in language was quite a challenge. The research was quite different and it encompassed many different things, not only images, but sometimes text as well, or such signals as facial expressions represented in different muscles. Mm, Nice. So yeah, it was very diverse. When you were researching, Ivona, during your PhD, did you ever like this idea of creating art with it? Because I guess you were creating a lot of explorations, trying to push, as you said, the technology. What can you do with this method? What can you do with this new technique? But did you have at some point or when did you actually connect that to create your own art and start to think of it as a work, right? Like as a work of art, something that you could publish somewhere and actually be collected. Did that idea came to your mind before the blockchain and NFTs and all these happened and became sort of popular? Or do you have that idea before, even when the mechanism, the distribution wasn't clear? When was that moment that you started to think of it as art? Oh, yeah. For a very long time, uh, I had no idea that I could use those tools for art. And uh, I used to be a creative person, but I thought that the research I'm doing is something very separate from the creative things I'm doing. So photography, film photography, this seemed like my creative endeavor that happened in my free time, also sometimes professionally, but it was very separate from the academia track. It was still fascinating to me because it involved photographs in some ways, but in a very different way from using that to create something new. So the change, the switch that you're asking about happened before the blockchain craze. And some people probably have been using blockchain by that time, but in 2000. 16, 17, when I started playing with neural networks to actually create something, I was not really aware of how can we use blockchain to tokenize digital art. And I was not really aware of what was already happening in the sort of underground or other areas of the web. And the first experiments, they all started actually as accidents. One time I was, I remember I was training this neural network. It was already a very early kind of GAN. I think it was like DC GAN, deep convolutional GAN. And I was actually working on a commercial project, a kind of semi-commercial, semi-research project, trying to generate images for retrieval of uh, certain items. And I messed up the parameters. I did the wrong kind of normalization in the beginning of feeding images. So normally when you start training neural network, you have to do some sort of operations like cleaning of the images. You have to average them. You have to make them kind of consistent. And I did something accidentally, something weird with that process. And as a result, I started getting very weird generated images. So my network was not really trying to imitate my training data, but it started creating some very weird patterns. Those were, of course, very small images. Back then, uh, we were creating like 64 by 64 pixel images. It was far from being high art. But I was absolutely fascinated by this emergence of something that I haven't programmed, but also what seemed to be inherently creative and something that 
would be creative in some sort of ways. I started playing with that. I realized what mistake was causing those weird patterns emerging. And at this point, I was hooked by the idea that those are kind of algorithms that I can use to create something new. I could play and I could get something that I didn't design. Back then, I was not aware of generative art, code-based art. To be honest, I thought that art and code, it's only something similar to fractals, what you have in mathematics. I was not aware of all those amazing artists already creating something with code. For me, it was the first step of realizing that you can use code and you can use algorithms to create something really unexpected and different. This is where I started playing with those tools. And of course, as the time went by, the quality of the methods improved and the models got better. And also the results I was able to get were better and better. Right, yeah. When I saw your first works, I'm not sure if that was your first work in the form of NFTs, but I think it was in 2021. When did you actually mint your first NFT, Ivona? Yeah, so it was early 2021. I think it was like January or February. I started learning a bit in the end of 2020. Because, yeah, I was already doing some AI art. I was training against. I was even publishing them. I was involved in a few discords and chat groups. I started hearing more and more people talking about that. And at some point, 2021, I remember it was a very sunny day. I didn't have a lot to do. And I decided, okay, I have to spend the whole day trying to maybe understand how do you meant your first NFT and the rest is history. Right. And exactly what you said, the techniques, the methods, all the available tools since that time has probably progressed so much faster than the previous years when you think about AI. And how do you think when you think about the first of your creations, your first artworks from two years ago and the things you are producing now, is it like completely different in terms of your setup? And, and the tools you're using and the possibilities. What have you noticed during these two years span, which is a really short time? Is it like a big change for you, a drastic change in how you approach your art creation or not really? That's a great question because it really touches upon the essence of being AI artist, which is somewhat very different from being a more traditional artist, painter, photographer, or even I'd say generative artist using code, JavaScript, or processing. So what happens is that when you're an AI artist, the tools that you use, they get out of date so quickly, and so many more powerful ones get introduced at such a quick pace that as soon as you master something, as soon as you're great at using one paintbrush, there is like 20 new ones that are so much better. On one hand side, there is this, I feel, kind of pressure to use the latest, best version of the model to create the most realistic images. But I personally think that on one hand side, this is not a very healthy approach because you cannot always chase the next big best thing. And also the pace is so fast that by trying every new shiny toy, once it gets introduced, you don't have the chance to really master the previous tools. I'm actually a huge fan of going slowly and sometimes even using older models, sometimes still going back to some tools and versions of them that have become outdated or even analog uh, in this AI world. Because I believe that what's important is not really the tool that you're using, 
but more so the message that you're trying to say for some projects, maybe older tools would be better making your point at expressing your worldview or maybe those emotions that you're trying to show to viewers. And as coming from uh, photography world, it's essentially the same thing that nowadays so many people have realized the beautiful potential of that old equipment and all those film cameras that were so far from ideal. I guess that we might come to this point with AI tools as well. And it's already happening that some of the artists I know, they are not really using the newest versions of models, but they really are quite nostalgic about the older ones as well. I don't really feel the pressure to be using the newest versions of those, but uh, for different kinds of projects, different tools would be better. Sometimes you want to explore the non-ideal representations of AI, because in those mistakes, there is so much knowledge about how AI sees the world and how it sees the training data. You can also find a lot of information about what the data it was trained on, what these stereotypes were in those data sets that encompass millions and millions of images. Or maybe in my case, when I'm training on smaller data sets of couple thousands of my photographs, even though I know them by heart individually, I am always very much surprised when I see what AI learns from them, even uh, the different tools, the older tools that make many mistakes. It's in those mistakes, in those accidents that I very often find creativity, art, and the message that I'm trying to get. Yeah, that's quite interesting what you said that you actually go back to older tools because they are better at showing or making your vision across. That takes me to the next question. I was wondering, what's your vision? Like if you have to tell someone when you chat about your art and you talk to collectors and other artists, what did you tell them? What are you trying to say with your creations? Is it a general concept or is it more like project by project in your case, Ivona? Oh, yes, I would say that's definitely different with each of the projects. But very often there is this one major theme that encompasses it all. I like to play with memories. As you might know, it's something that, well, it's very personal to me because it's actually coming from my family history as my grandmother started losing her memory when I was 13. And for the last 10 years of her life, she didn't really have much memory. I realized the potential and the value of that. The memories that I tried capturing on my film and cameras and digital equipment, it was all trying to mitigate this kind of fear of losing the memories. But then I took it to the next stage by not being just my personal memories, but using machine to reinvent them and to create a new reality that was born from all of those memories. So all the stories that I'm trying to tell, whether it's related to civilization, whether it's related to nature, to our surroundings, to our beliefs, it all very deeply goes back to how those beliefs, those views, and how those emotions are related to my very personal memories, but then reinterpreted for the gaze of the machine. So yeah, in a way, they're all very different stories, but also they have a common theme to them. Yeah, I'm looking, I own some of your pieces, especially from FX hash, but I do see a lot of works that when you say that, it makes sense. It feels like memories from your daily life. And then what I like about some of your works, at least there was a time where you were creating a lot of, I'm not sure if the word is animations, right? But were these sort of images that were 
changing and shaping and creating a new form. And I think you were, and correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the first to explore that sort of effects when it comes to AI. And yeah, you can really see that in your works. Ivona, what will you say regarding your art? Which collection for those collectors that are going to explore your works and maybe are not familiar, is the collection or your artwork that you are more proud of for whatever reason? Or maybe you can tell a bit about why, but which one you will say is the one you are more proud of? That's a very difficult question, to be honest, as all of them are important on different levels. I would say that the one we mentioned, so probably the animation is something that I really love to explore. And I like to call them motion paintings because the animations that I create, they don't typically have a narrative. They are not meant to be experienced as a beginning, middle of the story, ending, but they are more created to meditate about. Really like a motion painting that you just have on your wall and you just stare at it and watch it during the time fly by. So one of the most important ones I would say would be the early ones as it kind of shaped the next projects. The broader term for this, it's not even an official collection, but it's more a series of projects that I like to call Blue Hours. The first would be the Hicket Nunc uh, collection of 25 Blue Hours, which really started it all. But then as an ongoing series, as a very unofficial ongoing series, because I have never really told that it's like exploration and continuation of Blue Hours, but there are some models that were born from this initial Blue Hours series. And uh, they were trained on different data, but they share some of this dark and blue aesthetics. There is also collections that are machine nightscapes that was very directly linked to blowers that was further explorations of those. And then my one-of-ones on the foundation, the original ones, they were kind of one-of-one pieces that had a very individual storyline, but they are all born and exploring the theme of loneliness in the urban landscape and the very individual journeys into oneself. So I would say that this is kind of a founding collection that influenced a lot of my work and which influences are then found also in different projects, even in such different projects as Whispers and Code, for example, which is very different aesthetically, which is very different conceptually, but some of the aesthetical elements would not be born without having blowers and then all the related collections. So yeah, I don't know if it answers your question because it's a very vague one and it's like everything and nothing. Yeah. Um, no, 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 that's great. But, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, usually ask that kind of hard questions, but of course the idea is to understand your thought process and how you come up with that decision to name one, which is of course very hard. <laughs> but uh, yeah, actually I am very familiar with your work on FX hash and I have written some articles trying to define because these technologies are evolving and these tools are evolving all the time, not only from the perspective of the artist, but also from the perspective of the blockchain and the marketplaces and the galleries, there are different innovations. So the space could change very drastically in six months. But I've been using your work as an example to one article that I think it's now a bit outdated with everything that's happening, but the differences between generative coded art and AI art and the reason why I've been mentioning your work there is because you actually did both. You were in FXH, you were able to produce two projects and maybe more because at that time I remember there were two mythic Latin glitches 
the one that has the long name, Story of Atom, where you use... Yes. <laughs> what's the full name? It's a Story of Atom and... Yes, Study of Atom and Analog yeah. Digital. That one. In those two projects, you actually did some part with code, but you also had different models incorporated to generate the images. Can you tell us a bit about that? How did those projects work technically, but also what they mean to you? What are you trying to say with those projects in particular? Yeah, of course. It was actually a great article. I remember reading that and I was full of faith about the thorough work you did to try and shed some light onto the very relevant question on the differences between generative and AI art which I hear a lot and drink my time as a mentor at VCA residency. And when I give talks, I hear this question pop up a lot. So I guess it's a very important topic. But yeah, also it's a niche that I found when I combined using code and AI in a sort of generative and AI project. Something that I feel haven't been done quite a lot. Study of Atom, Analog and Digital and AI was my first project that explored the scene. Afterwards, when I had my Bright Moments collections, I also went to this direction to have the combination of AI model working, but also some typical generative JavaScript code running with the randomness inside it. It becomes this huge organism that has some parts of it AI and some parts of it code, all of it runs on randomness and very sophisticated algorithms. So it becomes even more black box than just using code. It's very fascinating to work with because when you just work with randomness and random parameters in generative art, you sort of know how to navigate them and you choose the boundaries, choose the minimum value for parameter maximum and all the possibilities, how you can change the code. doesn't really matter if you're working on long form project or you create the outputs yourself, but it's a very different way of changing those and influencing the outcome of a model than curating AI model and training your own neural networks. So when you combine the two, it's like this crazy model that you, first of all, have to design very carefully. You have to prepare the training because it's not something as easy to change as a parameter in code. When you're writing code, you can change, oh, let's say I want to have lambda 5 instead of 10 and you have results instantly. But if by when training neural network, you decide I want to change this alpha parameter set to 100 instead of one, well, you have to wait two or three days to get the results. It's a very different process. What I found most fascinating after working on those projects is actually how the two talk to each other or influence each other. I really like to take the outputs of AI model and then to feed them through some sort of additional algorithm that would maybe try to understand what's in this different model has been created, maybe try to analyze that. And I never know what it's going to be fed because I'm not then feeding images that I have really created myself, but I'm feeding the outputs of the model. So it's also very unpredictable in a very unexpected ways. As a generative artist in general, the unexpectedness and all the happy accidents are something really to strive on and try to catch those that would be the most interesting and would tell the most interesting narrative. Yeah, and when you say that it's very hard to predict, I think that's kind of a weapon, positive, negative. On one side, as you said, you can have a fine, happy accident. That's exciting. But on the other side, you can be sure on the output and what could emerge. So it's much more 
while, let's call it that way. When that happens, Yvonne, when you are working with AI tools, because there are different mechanisms. You actually released, correct me if I'm wrong, but your latest drop with Braindrops, it was actually curated. You kind of curated your favorite outputs, and those were the ones released in contrast with your collections with FXH, for example, where you just mentioned that it's much more unpredictable. For you, this is a kind of very open question, but in those two possibilities, which one do you enjoy more? You enjoy more having more control on what gets actually released, or you like that craziness and not being sure what actually will come out of the algorithm? Which one do you enjoy the most? (laughs) Well, that's another difficult question that I would say similar to telling which kids of yours do you like most, (laughs) which is like usually you don't tell answer. But those are very different ones. I would even say that every project, I would not be able to do the ones that are created as a long form. And also I would not be able to do the long form as created because when I designed the project, I started to think about the form already because if it's going to be a long form and something that I don't create at all, I would design this project very differently. I would think about it very differently as opposed to the one which is curated. So when something is curated, I would go crazy, not really caring if the model produces something absolutely weird. I just care that it has something interesting in it. Yeah, maybe if I have to choose, I would say the curated ones would be the ones I prefer as then I really don't have to set boundaries. I just can go as crazy as possible because if you have a long form, you don't really want to have 90% of the outputs be kind of too weird and then 10% absolutely amazing. You have this very delicate balance between navigating what is the average output, what are the rarities, and really designing the algorithm to have a very balanced relationship between all of those. When I go for a created one, I just know I can set the parameters to a very wide range and then just go manually and find the most interesting ones. Usually the 1% of the outputs from any kind of model would be the ones that make you stop, the ones that really have the strongest message, at least in my opinion. It would be a very different design process. And of course, doing a long form involves a lot more courage. This is also the reason why I haven't done a lot through long form projects such that were using AI models in them. I actually did only two. It was the Infinite with Bright Moments in Tokyo and also the Machine Hearted with Kate Vass. Both very different projects, but they were my first steps into true long form with AI. And they were very scary to do. The moment of drop, it was twice as scary because you were not aware of what's going to happen. Well, I mean, also, of course, there were generative art projects that were long form on FX hash, but the AI element was more limited. I was playing with the code and I knew what sort of things my code and JavaScript would produce. It was not as risky, but going AI long form is, is a different story, which is yeah, so much more scary and requires so much more work. I can imagine that in the case of the machine hearted, How did you train those models? Because you mentioned you are a photographer, and in many cases you use your photographs as the training data, the input for the models. Was that the case for this one, or you created the data with another method? How did you create the input data for that one in particular? Yeah, so machine-hearted was a very different pipeline than my usual one, and very different models that I 
than the usual models I work on. To some extent, it was also an experiment with using different tools. So as I mentioned, when you're an AI artist and you just have so many new shiny toys, you don't really want to jump to the newest one. But on the other hand, you also sometimes want to try different, let's even call that mediums, because training your visual model is as different from text to image as I would even call it a different medium within AI art arsenal of tools. When Kate Vass approached me about being part of the K011 platform, all of the projects that are on this platform, they actually have to be built around the framework we have. And this framework is a text-to-image kind of tool that allows to implement different kinds of artist models, but they all have to adhere to a very strict set of rules. So it had to be a text-to-image model because all the rarities are built around it. When we talked with Cade, we had this idea to work around emotions because emotions appear in so many different projects of mine. Also, I mentioned the research I've been doing about detecting emotions from face photographs. We decided to go this way, and my goal was to explore how emotions are represented within large language models. I was using my photographs as an initial image, but I also wanted to explore not how I have represented the emotions, but really how those vast data sets of millions of images, what stereotypes do they convey? And also how those stereotypes, they have this visual language. We talk about scattered grief and you can even, uh, the scattered is something that you can represent visually, of course. Also we have like, vibrant sorrow. And I wanted to work around those very complex, multidimensional emotions and see how AI would struggle, but also try to cheat by using the very direct interpretation of those expressions that we tend to use when we talk about those feelings. So this is why I was essentially using LLMs trained on huge data sets and only using some of my initial images to give it a particular style or some aesthetics that would be different. So it was a very different process because for the training of that, I didn't use so much photographs from my archives than I usually do. Yeah, and I've seen uh, multiple props from Kate Bath. I think it's a, a fantastic innovation. I think Gumbrot also had a collection uh, released through that framework you mentioned. And the text-to-image is an interesting topic. I've seen, actually, in the podcast, we had Clownbump, who is doing fantastic stuff, and he's using mostly text-to-image. And he focuses more on the message that he's trying to convey. In your case, Ivona, you clearly have, as you said, explore different techniques, different tools. And as an artist, working with all these, as you said, the arsenal of tools, What will you tell people that are not really fans of the text-to-image? What will you tell them when it comes to art and that it's still possible to create very meaningful, and if you're thinking about complexity, also very complex stuff, and it's very time-consuming as well. What do you usually tell people that ask you about art made with AI, that they aren't really buying it or they are really excited about it? What's your typical answer as an artist? Well, (laughs) to be honest... If I would recommend something to a starting artist, I would actually say that if you want to create something really original and different, I would not recommend to go to text to image, but actually to try and gather your own data set and to train maybe a visual AI or maybe to try fine tuning your own model because it is possible to use, of course, text to image to create meaningful works. 
so many amazing artists have done that, but it is so much more difficult, I would say. And the main shortcoming is, of course, that the data sets that are used, those are models that somebody else has trained on. So we don't really have influence over that unless we train those models further. And if we are a starting artist, you usually would just come in and play with somebody else's model. And it's possible to create something really interesting, but so much more challenging. I would really advise if someone is interested to learn more about the tools, how they work, and really think about different ways of using those tools. You might see a lot of people creating photorealistic images, digital collages, all those kinds of perfect images, but then you can think, well, maybe let's do something different than those people are doing, and let's do something that no one else has thought of, and maybe this tool could be great for a very different application. This is where creativity gets born, and yeah, it's so much easier to do actually when you train your own models because then your visual language is something that is a lot easier to be expressed with. Especially, it's important to remember that AI is a very abstract term that nowadays, especially to wider audience, seems quite ambiguous. But AI is patterns extracted from data. It's, it's nothing more, it's nothing less. It's information extracted from data. Stable diffusion journey, it's information extracted from those data sets the authors have collected of the images they think are valuable or representative of the world. So if you want to create something valuable with AI, you have to think about the data. Everyone has different kinds of data, of course. What's the data that is valuable to you and what data do you want to tell the story? Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, I have a couple of questions if one I would like to ask you before we end this discussion but just a reminder for everybody listening here in the twitter space but also uh, listening to the podcast later on you can find all the tools all the collections that Ivona is mentioning in the description of the podcast and also remember i record this podcast every monday on twitter space with different artists creators builders in the space usually generative artists or ai artists so yeah, you will find the information there in the description. Also, if you have questions for Ivona, you can ask them using the bottom right icon. It's a chat icon. You can tweet your questions. And Ivona, that's very interesting what you said. And I've been trying to create AI art and I wanted to build my own stuff. I wanted to build my own models. I take photographs sometimes as a hobby. Do you have any, and maybe you don't want to reveal your secrets here, I, I will leave that up to you, but how, <laughs> how do you actually come up with a big data set of photographs? Do you actually take all of those, or maybe you don't need that many images to train your models? How do you approach that? How do you actually create a meaningful data set? Are you using any sort of techniques to generate images from your images and then use that as the input data, or what's usually your process? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. When I start a new project, I would usually do either one of the approaches or a combination of approaches, where first of all is going out and shooting, but also it can be just random shooting. After doing several projects, you realize that you need to be very careful about the images you take and really think ahead of the kind of aesthetics you want to achieve. Because some images might seem very similar to us or to be about the same topic, 
But for machine learning models, they would be different. It would just get lost because it's different topics next round. So for example, if I were to shoot cityscapes, I would only go on at the same time of the day. I would only focus on the same viewpoints. Either it's a close-up, either it's a from a distance shot. Are there any people in them consistently or not? What kind of color palettes I'm using? All those kind of information have to be really consistent from photo to photo. And you just can have too much freedom because the more ambiguity in data, the more difficult for AI would be to learn and extract patterns from that, which really requires a lot of planning and a lot of thinking ahead about what you want to achieve. Then when you make this data to be in this specific pattern. It would be the same if using archives, then you don't shoot them, but you have to do a lot of filtering. You have to go through the images. For that step, I sometimes use different kind of AI to navigate through the huge data sets. So for example, I could use a classification network to quickly give me images of faces or give me images that are similar to something. There are ways to quicker navigate fast data sets of images that you already have. And then the third approach, which is also something that I started adding to my data sets, is sometimes using text-to-image tools as a way of expanding my data set. So, for example, the same example of cityscapes, I could go on and try to generate more images starting from my initial images, but maybe having more variations, a bit artificially increasing the size of the data set. Of course, this approach is a bit limited because AI can create just a number of different variations from the things you have. And those artificially generated images would usually be a bit less of a learning quality and learning material. So it will not give you as much added value as more real life photographs that usually have a lot more details, a lot more texture and a lot more something that AI doesn't know already. Because when AI has generated something with a different model, it's usually just uh, reduced to some simple patterns and forms. Every project would require a different combination of those. And in some of the projects, I would just do my archives, or I would maybe just do one of the approaches. There were some projects that I decided I will not even use my archives. I would spend three weeks and just go out and collect new data. It's also a very amazing experience because when you know what kind of project you want to create, you can focus on creating, on photographing the kind of materials will work best. This would also result in a great data set. And also the more projects you do, the more models you train, you realize how should you look at those things and what would be great for AI to learn from, as opposed to what would actually just confuse it. And you would not want to include that in training data. So yeah, there's some different ways and you can, of course, combine them all. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. That's great to understand your process because that's something that I struggle with, to be honest. And also the question of how big are your data sets? How many photographs do you usually use to have an idea of how complex, mm -hmm. how big are these data sets? Oh, that depends also in the project. Do you have that number in mind, more or less, like the range you usually use? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, one very important thing to note here is that when you train AI models, to get the best results, you would not start from scratch every time. What really happens, I have this family tree of models, essentially. And I have very, very old ones that were trained on 3,000, 4,000 photographs. So the early ones that are trained from scratch, 
they need a lot. They need a couple thousand usually. It also is the case when you want to train something very different. So if I wanted now to train a model that is generating animals, I don't really photograph animals. If I wanted to have a model that does that, I would need a data set of several thousands. But I usually focus on cityscapes, urban landscapes, nature, those kind of things. They translate from one to another. So in my family tree of AI models, from those, my kind of foundational models, the upper the tree, the less images I really need. When I have 10 models trained on water images or oceans or seascapes, now if I wanted to apply that and let's say create a model related to Aegean sea islands or something that is relatable to that, I would just need 100 or 200 images and I would fine tune that on my older models. In this family of models, when you have something that is very similar, you don't really need the thousands of photographs, but 100 or 200 of quality images that are in a specific theme and they are very consistent can give you some good results with short amount of training. This is the sort of fine tuning that I like to do. But of course, it also doesn't mean that those 100 or 200 can be just any random images. The less images you have, the more careful you need to be about what's in those images. If you have 10,000 of those, you can have like 100 garbage images. No one really cares. But if you only have several hundred, you really need to be careful so that every image is perfect, something that represents the concept very well, doesn't have any mistakes, any watermarks, pixels, pixelations, or justice from a different theme. So yeah, you have to be more careful with smaller ones. That's great to hear that from you because these guidelines, I think they are very hard to find, to be honest, since this is a very, as you said, a very niche medium, a very niche art form. I think you cannot find these sort of guides uh, online. At least I haven't found them. Thanks a lot for sharing that, Ivona. And what about the hardware and the, and the software, Ivona, um, that you use? Because training these data models and waiting for it to produce the outputs, that takes a lot of time. Do you have any very powerful hardware or are you using like cloud, cloud systems? What, what do you usually use? Oh, yeah. So at the beginning, I actually used my university servers <laughs> because I had access to a lot of the power that no one was really using. And, well, I decided that I had the approval to kind of use some of those for some of my personal training. And I didn't want to invest in any powerful hardware. Then I was thinking about buying some hardware. But to be honest, I really did the math that using cloud could be a better solution especially if your requirements vary from project to project. So most of the time I would use cloud and it's something that is very nice to do when you're traveling a lot and you're working from different sort of airports or different places, hotels, etc., which is very often the case for me. I could not be too long outside my studio to be able to meet all the deadlines and the projects I'm working on. So it's actually a perfect solution for me that you just have to carry on your laptop and be able to run the experiments on the cloud. And yeah, for that, I just use plain GCP to set up my dockers and to have all my libraries inside that. We have a couple different instances that I just run when I need the training. And then for the inference, when I had the models trained, I would use a smaller, cheaper instance that can just be running for a long time and have some scripts, Python scripts on that, or even Jupyter notebooks to visualize the results of the models, to play with them a bit. 
or for some stuff even locally you can actually run run some things even on m1 for inference and not training so we can do that even locally offline so yeah the setup is not really complex in any ways in terms of the software i would write python code 90 percent of the time unless i'm combining ai with generative then i would go on and do p5.js most of the time or ml library in js m5.js and in python for training PyTorch is the best one. If anyone was looking to learn any libraries to use, most of the model implementations are available in PyTorch when there are any new libraries coming out. So you can play with that. And PyTorch is actually very accessible library, which is written in a way that Python is written. And it's probably the easiest computing language. If anyone was looking to learn uh, programming and was interested in AI, of course, Python would be the way. Awesome. And again, all these links will be in the description to find them. And yeah, now your secrets are out there, Ivona. That's uh, fantastic <laughs> information. It's something that I really wanted to ask you, you know, what's uh, your setup? Because it's such a unique and the way you explain it, and you're also moving from one technology, one framework to another. So it makes it clear your level of expertise, but also dedication. And I can imagine over the next years, you will have other things included. So that's fantastic. And again, in this topic, when you think about generative coded art, it's a little bit different because there are some frameworks that are very popular. For example, Rblocks or FXHash, P5 is very popular. In that sense, they follow a similar, but with AI, you have so much flexibility if you go deep into the technology, right? All right, Ivona, thanks so much. This has been amazing. I have the last question. I'll put you in the spot again. It's usually hard for artists to answer this, but I'm looking for your inspiration. So who are your three artists that actually inspire you or that you are a fan of? Who will you name if you had to name three? Oh, yes, the famous inspiration question. I was thinking about a combination. Mm, I would say that for me, the trio of inspiration would be the colors of William Egglestone, the surrealism of Dora Maar, and of course, the mood of David Lynch. So that would be my trio. Awesome. That's a fantastic lineup. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for the conversation. It was absolutely a pleasure to talk about it. And I yeah, also hope that listeners will find some useful information. I love to share. As you said, it's, yeah, there are some secrets I'm not sharing, of course, but <laughs> I'm also very happy to help for anyone who's just starting out, especially as it can seem quite intimidating, the AI world and coding and in general, also for people who are not stereotypically thought about as, as coders. So for example, female coders, something that I try to inspire about that, yeah, also girls can code. This is why I like to share a lot of initial steps to help people do their first steps with the medium. Yeah, that's great. That's something that helps everybody in the community and makes this movement go further. Thanks a lot, Ivona, for everything you're doing and hope we can chat again soon. And yeah, have a, a great day. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a lovely rest of the day. Bye. Bye-bye.